0: Welcome to Casting Hope, the sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, Lead Pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to his promises. We are doing something different at Hope. Uh, Usually we spend the season exploring a single book of the Bible. But this sermon series we're calling Table Read, we are spending a few months or more exploring the entire Bible. Not section by section in each book, but actually each book at a time. And at times we'll even do a few sections at a time. We're calling the sermon series Table Read because a table read is when actors and actresses sit down at a table and they read the script. Of the drama that they're in from beginning to end. And what this does is it gives the players in the drama the big picture, which in turn gives them confidence in their part to play. I hope we actually believe the Bible is best understood as the true story of the world. We actually believe this is the drama of God's rescue, so much. Of the time we approach the Bible as just a book of advice and a book of how to live spiritually. And there certainly is advice and there certainly is pathways to life in this. But ultimately, what the Bible is, it is a divine drama. It is the true story of the world. It is the true story of God rescuing for Himself His people. And this means two things. Number one, God is the hero of this book. And number two, surprisingly, we have a significant part to play in this drama. And so what we need most, I believe, is a table read. That's what we're doing as a church. We're sitting down, maybe not at the table, but we are getting to know this divine drama from beginning to end so that we can play our part well. Amen? And what this this has done is it has caused us to explore books of the Bible that we don't usually go to. Last week, if you were with us, we explored Leviticus. And this morning, we will step into the ancient and strange world of Numbers. But before we do that, let's just pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our Redeemer, And Lord, we know that because you are our Redeemer in Jesus, we are indeed acceptable and pleasing to you. We are bound up with Jesus. And it's our desire this morning to encounter Jesus in the book of Numbers so that we would worship him and that we would indeed see the beauty of Jesus. And that would transform us. That's our prayer is an encounter with you, Lord. Make us, expect it, make us eager this very morning as we open your powerful word. And it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I've been recording some videos for our Hope Instagram account, unpacking our values as a church. And the intent on doing this is for any newcomers or passers-by to just get a sense of what makes us tick. Since it's an Instagram post, It's pretty unpolished. It's not something I do every day. But that doesn't mean I didn't try multiple times to get a decent take. Like six or seven times. (laughs) What you see appears spontaneous. But what you didn't see are the six bad takes. The misfires. When I completely lose my train of thought. When I repeat myself, when I say, um, like 17 times too many. When I mess up. See, I know how to present myself in ways that make me look good. Social media is literally designed for this. And I know how to do it. But I don't need social media to do it either. I know how to spotlight the good in my life. I know how to shut out the bad. I know how to spin the ugly. When I meet anyone. So author Pete Scazzaro, he calls this my resume of strengths. And so I tend to show people my resume of strengths everywhere I go. And to everyone I meet. Which means, of course, I have to hide my resume of weakness. My failures my embarrassments, my limits. I think we all do this. When we share our story, we naturally spotlight the good in our story. We naturally shut out the bad. We naturally spin the ugly. We have a carefully curated resume of strengths, don't we? And this is the story we tell. To others, for sure and even over time to ourselves. And we start to believe our resume of strengths and we start to believe that our resume of weakness doesn't even exist. But as David's always pointed out, presenting only a resume of strengths to others and to yourself is a recipe for loneliness and for burnout. And maybe you can track with me on this personally. The resume of strength, if that's all you have to give folks then you will be lonely. You will be lonely because when we pretend that we have everything together in our life, we shut ourselves off from the human community, which is deeply, deeply broken, and we all know it. So if we lead with a resume of strength to everyone we encounter, we will be lonely. We will be cut off from things like receiving empathy from others, or receiving forgiveness from others, or receiving connection from others. Receiving grace from others. And yes, even God. And that's the lonely place to be. But if all you do is lead with a resume of strength, you will also burn out. And maybe you're there this morning. When we pretend to have it all together, we burn out spectacularly. I followed the guitarist on social media for a long time, We started getting a ton of followers, because he would just present these amazing 20 second guitar arrangements and then just like that he's gone and we find out later that he totally just burnt out he was so tired of taking and taking and taking and taking and retaking and retaking and retaking that little 20 second riff and he got burned out and he lost his love for the guitar and that'll happen to us too. If our lives are basically just carefully curated resumes of strength, we too will check out. It's unsustainable. And so there has to be a better way. Amen? There has to be a better way to navigate this world. Well, if you can believe it, the book of Numbers shows us a better way. How so? Well, the book of Numbers is basically a long catalog of mistakes and missteps and misfires and royal rebellions. It's an ancient resume of weakness. And even more significantly, it is God's people's resume of weakness. It is Israel's resume of weakness who are called to reflect God out into the world. And what we have in our Bible, in this divine drama that we are taking part, what we have is a raw, uncensored resume of weakness. The way that Israel tells their story is one of honesty. The way that Israel tells their story Is one does not spin the ugly. But seems to draw it out. So let me just show you. And this will be the way that we get ourselves acquainted. With this ancient book of Numbers. So first we have chapters 1 through 10. In the book of Numbers. And these first 10 chapters. Are extremely promising actually. So God just gave them three gifts in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus. If you were with us, you know that God just gave Israel three huge gifts. First of all, the gift of divine rescue. That's Exodus. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, swapping the tyranny of Pharaoh and his gods for the good rule of the true God. That's the gift of divine rescue. And then we have the gift of divine intimacy. God wants to walk with Israel again, just like in the Garden of Eden. And so he moves into a movable house. Why is it movable? Because he knows his people are on the move and he wants to be with them. And that's the tabernacle. We read about that at the end of Exodus and all of Leviticus, which takes us to the third gift that we just encountered, which is the gift of divine Forgiveness. So God doesn't only rescue his people. He doesn't only promise intimacy with his people. But he says, I will forgive you because it is great, at least in theory, to have the promise of God's intimacy. But when God is utterly holy and we're honest with our brokenness. How can God draw near and stay near? How can we draw near and stay near? Well, God's answer is actually Leviticus. At that point in the story, it provided divine forgiveness and access to God. So, after these three gifts of rescue, intimacy, and forgiveness, Israel begins their journey to the promised land. And these 10 chapters are like when your car is running gray at the beginning of your road trip. You know how it feels? Everything's humming, you have the playlist going. Everything's great, the weather's on. But then about you know a quarter of the way through, what happens? A light flashes on your dash. You start to get tired. Things start to go sideways. and that's exactly what happens when you flip the page to chapter 11, the check engine light just turns on with Israel and their journey. Because in chapter 11, God's people are literally hungry for Egypt's food, and they start complaining. And this isn't just kids complaining in a car ride. Moses is in so much anguish over this complaining that he asks God to take his life. And that's not a joking matter. So that in chapter 12, Moses' own brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, come alongside and encourage Moses at his lowest point No, that's not all what they do. It says they speak out against Moses in chapter 12 because of his unique role in God's story. But the text actually hints that it's also because they didn't like his interracial marriage with a Kushite woman, who would be from modern-day Sudan. So then we enter into chapters 13 through 14. This takes place at a place called Kadesh, and the fear of God's promised land spreads like wildfire over God's people, so that God's people basically say, I'd rather have slavery with Egypt than freedom with you, God. I mean, have you ever said that to the Lord in your prayers? I'd rather go over here than be with you, because being with you is terrible. And that's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. And this results in 40 years of wandering. And then we get to chapters 15 and 16 in Numbers Where a rogue priest named Kohar organizes a coup against the Lord and against Moses. They want to take Moses down, which tragically means the Lord takes them down and literally into the earth. But in response, God's people repent and they start worshiping. No, they don't. They don't. That's not what it says. The whole community starts resenting the Lord at that moment. And it continues in chapter 17, where we hear God's rescued people say, and I'm quoting, We are dead. We are ruined. We are all doomed to die. Thanks, God. And then, after a few more chapters in 18 through 20, Israel starts to move finally toward the east bank of the Jordan. And here we come to chapter 20. Things again are looking promising, but here Moses has a devastating moral failure. Moses, God's man. He basically disobeys God's clear command to speak to the rock for water, striking it instead twice out of anger. Now, this results, and the consequence of this is that Moses won't see the Promised Land. And I have to admit, when I read this, I'm kind of like, that seems a little harsh. You know what I mean? That seems super harsh. But keep in mind this Moses is not just tapping a rock. God so identifies with this rock. It's as if Moses is hitting God in anger. That's where things are going. In this ancient book. And then we get in chapter twenty one, where God's people, and I'm quoting, grew impatient with the long journey, and they start accusing God again of being a terrible Lord, again saying, not even insinuating, I prefer Egypt. I prefer the ways of Egypt. I prefer the Egyptian pantheon to you, Lord. And that about sums up the book of Numbers. But we're not done Because chapters 22 through 36 Israel is done walking And they are on the east bank of the Jordan So close to the promised land And it's here we get Basically a repeat Of the golden calf incident And Israel Just straight up abandons God And just straight up abandons God's ways and that's the highlights of numbers. Scholar Gordon Fee says a well, I'm quoting, this is simply not fun reading. End quote. I <laughs> yeah, it's not fun reading, but it's the true story of the world. And it's Israel's resume There's no spotlighting the good, shutting out the bad, and spinning the ugly. And I think this gives us two vital gifts when we make this our story too. The gift of warning and the gift of worship. I want to explain what I mean. So first, the gift of warning. This is one of the two ways the rest of the Bible uses and thinks about numbers. So, this may surprise you, but numbers pops up over and over again in our Bibles. And it pops up quite a bit as a gracious warning. And we will see two different examples of this, one in the Old and one in the New Testament. So first in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament received numbers as a gift of warning. We see this in Psalm 78. And so, verse 40, it says, how often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So one of the Testament scholar says, this psalm is clear about its purpose, to recount these events in song so that future generations of God people might take the lessons to heart, particularly that they not be unbelieving and rebellious like the generations described here. End quote. So the purpose of this psalm, they literally put it in their worship service and they sang the, the, the sort of resume of weakness of Israel, past, why? So they wouldn't repeat it. They actually received it as a gift of warning. God is holy. Sin is dangerous. And you might think, yeah, that's the Old Testament. Now we have Jesus. But Jesus followers in the first church. Like we're thinking the church in Corinth that Paul pastored, for instance. Listen to what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 10. He says to them, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. Did you know the Hebrew name of Numbers is actually in the wilderness? The reason it's called Numbers in our Bibles is because, um, well, it's a long story, and it's kind of geeky. But the point is, there's a lot of counting in Numbers, right? There's a census, quite a bit. And so the Greek title of Numbers is, well, Numbers in Greek. But in the Hebrew mind it was in the wilderness because that's what it is it is a depiction of Israel in the wilderness and so Paul's doing a direct shout out to the book of numbers and he says don't forget dear brothers and sisters he's talking to the church the Jesus followers so this still has relevance how so how so he says yet God was not pleased with most of them verse 5 and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness verse 6 these things happened as a warning to us. That's his word, a warning, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry, verse 8, and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing twenty-three k, 23,000 of them to die one day. Verse 9, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. verse 10. And don't grumble as some of them did when they were destroyed by the angel of death, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age, and that's us too, friends. And so numbers should function in our lives as a gift of warning, if we're going to be in line with the way the Bible uses numbers. Paul says, if you think you're standing strong, enter into this script. He goes on, be careful not to fall. So, friends, if you think right now you're standing strong, the gift of numbers is be careful. Verse 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful, He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, we love that verse. We've quoted that verse. We've done Bible studies on that verse. But did you know that that verse comes straight out of the book of Numbers? Not the verse itself. But the, but the, the pastoral care comes out of this script. And so we look at the old, we look at the new. And in both cases, Numbers is understood as a loving warning. They say to us, be careful. Sin is more destructive than you realize. And you're made of the same stuff that these people are made out of. Be careful. Numbers is, in other words, a mirror. Use it wisely. Use it wisely. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the warnings in the Bible, I tend to think that God is being harsh. But here's the thing. If God is holy, and He's as holy as He says He is, and shows Himself to be, And if sin is as destructive as God says it is, and as it has shown itself to be in our lives, then numbers is one of the most loving gifts that God can give us. I'll say that again. If God is as holy as He says He is, and if sin is as destructive as God says He is, then numbers is one of the greatest gifts that He can give His people. Think about it. If you know your daughter is about to walk into a minefield, and I'm not talking a figurative minefield, like a literal minefield, it is unloving, and I would actually argue it's downright mean, to not give a warning. You see it? Right now as I speak, actually, there are some Hope guys rafting down the Upper Gauley River in West Virginia as part of the men's retreat. This river is one of the most dangerous rivers in America. And the river guides are probably on the bus right now, this old rickety bus. Who's gone rafting? You know what this is. You're in this rickety bus, and the river guide's up there making jokes. They're bad jokes, usually. And um, sometimes they're funny. And he basically, or she basically says, this is really dangerous, and people have died with us. And you're like, that's a killjoy. Thank you. You know, we're here to have fun. They're going to tell stories to terrify them as part of their shtick. No, because they're river guides, they're river guides and they're doing it out of profound care. It would be unloving of them to throw those guys who are there right now into the upper gully without a warning. Do you see it now? And so receive numbers as a gift of warning. Maybe do that in two ways. As a reality check. Let numbers be a reality check. It is for me a reality check. As I was studying this this week, I'm like, this is really important for me to grapple with. God is far more holy than we realize. The sociologist Christian Smith, he famously studied the religious views of the average American, and he summarized it as Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Moralistic means God is all about us doing good. Therapeutic is God is all about us feeling good. And deism means that God is distant, only there when we call on him. And so we can come to church, we can worship in church, and Christian Smith would argue that because of the water we're swimming in, it's likely that we have more in common with moralistic therapeutic deism than we actually do with what we read about. In the true story of the world. And so notice that things are, are missing from this description, like holiness and humility. If God is all about just me doing good and feeling good, and I can and He's there when I can call on him, but He's basically absent when I don't need Him, if that's true, there's zero that makes sense in this book numbers. And maybe that's why we sort of wrestle with it. And I do too. But it's a reality check. Numbers is a reality check. God is holy and sin is dangerous. And so secondly, I want to encourage Numbers to be a gift of smelling salt to us. Who's experienced smelling salt before? I have once, and it is like absolutely atrociously effective. (laughs) A smelling salt is so strong and pungent, it, it can wake you up out of a deep, deep unconsciousness. And Numbers is that for me. Frankly, Numbers is smelling salt for me. It wakes me up. It's pungent enough to wake me up to my sin problem. This is actually how Nehemiah uses numbers. Did you know that? In Nehemiah chapter 9, he recounts numbers as a means to sort of provoke and sort of encourage repentance in his life and in the life of others. This can be a profound smelling salt in our life. That sin is dangerous. And God is holy. It's a loving warning. When you receive it from a loving God. But that's not the only way numbers is used in the Bible. Did you know that? Numbers is definitely used as a warning, but you can also read in the scriptures where numbers resurfaces or where it echoes again. And oftentimes it is used as a gift of worship. Now, this may surprise you, but because as high as God's holiness goes, which we just learned about, and as low as our sin problem goes, God's grace is more, and it actually is on full display in the book of Numbers. See, Numbers is ultimately a book about God's profound grace. See, earlier we walked through Israel's resume of weakness. But what I left out of that journey was what we could call God's resume of grace so let's just recount it in chapter 11 remember God's people complain and Moses wants to die God at that moment spreads his spirit to 70 leaders in the church or in in Israel to be merciful to have mercy on Moses so a little preview of Pentecost and then in chapter 12 Moses intercedes for Miriam remember Miriam sort of undercut Moses, at his low point, when Moses intercedes her, people beautiful picture, and God is merciful. And then in chapter 14, Moses intercedes for not just her sister, his sister, but for all of Israel, reminding God of his own promises, reminding God of his unfailing love, how he forgives every single kind of rebellion, every single kind of sin, so that his name would be famous, and God pardons them of their rebellion. Because of Moses' intercession. So that in chapter 16, after Korah's rebellion, Moses and Aaron stand between the justice of God and the people of God. And again, God shows mercy. In chapter 21, God gives His people a copper snake. If you were in any kind of like Sunday school growing up, you know this story. And when they just look at that snake, they are not bitten by the snakes of His judgment. He gives them grace and grace. And a grace provision. So that in chapter 25 we have the golden calf 2.0. Remember? But this episode is surrounded by God's stubborn commitment to his promises. His promise to bless Israel. To be a blessing to the nations. So that in chapters 23 through 24 and 22. Well God makes a pagan prophet Balaam. Bless Israel. Even though he was hired to curse them. And not just once but multiple times is so unbelievably shocking, that story. And what it ought to do for us is it ought to shock us into receiving God's resilient mercy towards the rebellious people. <clears throat> and in the last two chapters, it ends on a grace note as well because God gives Israel guidance for how to live well in the promised land, which is a giant vote of confidence. <laughs> Even though they are doing everything to bungle it, God is still going to stay faithful with His promise. Amen? Numbers is a warning. Amen. It is. But it is also a profound means to worship. Because we will not worship unless we receive two things. One, God's shocking holiness. When we catch view of God's shocking holiness, number one. And number two, we catch view, even better, we receive God's shocking grace. Worship does not happen if God is not holy. Gratitude does not fuel lives of sacrifice unless God is absolutely holy and yet He is profoundly and to the same degree gracious in our greatest need. See, if God is not holy and sin is no big deal, then our heart remains unmoved. But if God is utterly holy and we don't receive God's grace, then our hearts are terrified. But if God is utterly holy and He is utterly gracious, our hearts melt. And we have what the scriptures call the fear of God, which is not a terror, a, a sort of holy terror. Instead, it's a loving awe. That's worship. A loving awe. God is huge. He is holier than we realize. And yet, He loves us. He is near us. And he forgives us, and He gives grace to us. That is called a holy. That is called a joyful, loving awe. I've shared this many times before because it helps me. But the British pastor, Andrew Wilson, says, this fear of the Lord is sort of like what Harry and his friends must have felt around Dumbledore. It's an awe. It's a a real, real sense of awe. Oh my gosh. And yet, it's a loving awe. Why? Because they know that he is for them. They know that he is for them. And if that's true in that series, how much more true is that with the God of the universe, that God is so holy and yet he is for you, that creates a loving awe. That creates, friends, worship, and nothing else will. And friends, numbers is a gift to us in that way. It gives us the gift of worship. We can stand in awe of three things. God's grip. His grip on you is stronger than your grip on him. His grip on you is stronger than even your rebellion. If if God can bless Israel with a pagan prophet Balaam. On the heels of their faithfulness and rebellion. What makes you think that he's giving up on you? What makes him think that that you've crossed the line? His grip is strong and it's on you. And number two. Stand in awe of his grace. So Psalms. Talk about this. Psalm 105 and 106 are worship songs of God's faithfulness and grace. And in them, they're just simply rehearsing Exodus and Numbers. And you too can stand in awe and sing in awe of his mercy and grace. And finally, friends, this is how we'll end. I want you to stand in awe of God's son, Jesus. See, ultimately, Numbers is not just our story. But it is Jesus' story. Except where Israel fails, and we fail with them, Jesus is faithful. The Gospels go out of their way, actually, to make sure that we notice that Jesus is reliving numbers. Did you know that? The Gospels go out of their way to make sure that we notice that Jesus is reliving numbers. For Israel and for all of us. And so after Jesus, in a way, parts the waters in his baptism, Exodus, anyone? Jesus is what? What happens? He's driven into the wilderness. But instead of succumbing to hunger and to Satan, what? Jesus is faithful. And by the way, he often uses scripture from, you guessed it, this part of the script. See, Jesus is faithful; we're, we're, we are faithless. In fact, Gordon Wyndham, Old Testament scholar, helped me see all the ways in which John's Gospel, John, wants us to worship Jesus in view of Numbers. That's like, really? Why didn't anybody tell me this? So, John six fourteen compares Jesus to Moses, saying, in, in a sense. Jesus is the greater Moses. John three fourteen compares Jesus to the serpent in the wilderness. John, John writes, "As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life." John four ten through fifteen compares Jesus to the living water. Remember, they were complaining of their thirst. Well, Jesus is portrayed as the only one who parches our thirst in our wilderness journey. And some scholars even see Jesus fulfilling what is called the water ordeal or the jealousy ordeal in Numbers 5. This is an ordeal or a, a test almost in which a woman must drink water to test if they've committed adultery. And it's a troubling passage for many who read it. pointed out to me by Alistair Roberts at the well at the well Jesus doesn't give the Samaritan woman who is indeed guilty of adultery there the water that curses as in Numbers chapter 5 instead he gives her the water And on the cross, Jesus himself drinks the bitter water. He is the faithful husband who takes the curse of our spiritual adultery in his place. John 6, 26 compares Jesus to the bread from heaven, the manna. That's a numbers thing. And of course, in John 1, Jesus is the tabernacle. tabernacle. God with us. God's glory among us. Are you worshiping him? Yes, God is holy and sin is disastrous, but God's grace is more. It is more. It is deeper still. See, members tells us a, a story of failure, but that means that the grace of, and the mercy of God, that's the hero. And this can actually, I think, help us all tell our story with more honesty. And that's Just one I want to encourage you to think about as we close. Can you, like the Apostle Paul, lead with your, as Kazara puts it, your resume of weakness instead of your resume of strength? Can we learn something from ancient Israel? Can we indeed tell our story in a way that doesn't spin? Spin out the bad parts or or cut out the bad parts? Why? Because we're not the point, but God's grace is. God's strength rests in our weakness. So friends, we are able, to be honest, Numbers can help you frame your story. Life is like a journey of failures and faithfulness and failures. It's a wilderness of patience and impatience and patience. It's a dangerous journey. But our story, if we're trusting in Jesus, is one that is secure. His faithfulness wins the day. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for meeting us in this ancient book that we so often glide over or struggle to know what to do with. And we ask, Lord, that you would indeed give us your life in place of our rebellion on this morning. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, would we see that in effect? That we are not just consuming bread at a table, but indeed, We are encountering manna from heaven. Provision, food that can only satisfy Jesus Himself. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.